I would invite you to turn with me in your copies of God's Word to Psalm chapter 13, Psalm of David. Before reading from the Word of the Lord, let's go to our God in prayer together. Our Lord, we bow in humility before You, acknowledging that we are sinners full of rebellion, weakness, with minds and hearts prone to wander. We bow in adoration before the great and mighty God who would in such kindness enter into covenant relationship with such wayward people who had nothing but disinterest, disdain toward you. And we pray that we would ever grow in our knowledge and understanding of this covenant of grace and the wonderful riches that are ours in Christ our Lord. And bless us, we pray, that your word would bring comfort to those who are going through periods of difficulty, hardship, and trial that would prepare us for the inevitable persecutions and hardships that will come in this earthly life. We pray such things through the power of the risen Christ. In his name, amen. Stand with me, if you will, for the reading of God's word. To the choir master, a psalm of David. How long, O Lord, will you forget me forever? How long will you hide your face from me? How long must I take counsel in my soul and have sorrow in my heart all the day? How long shall my enemy be exalted over me? Consider and answer me, O Lord my God. Light up my eyes, lest I sleep the sleep of death, lest my enemy say I have prevailed over him lest my foes rejoice because I am shaken. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because He has dealt bountifully with me. The Word of our God. You may be seated. One of the ways in which we can use the Psalms in our own life is to think of them as spiritual disciplines as disciplines of grace. The Psalms really touch upon every facet of our being. They inform the mind, helping us understand how to think as God's people. They direct our will, guiding us to understand how to keep our gaze fixed upon the Lord God as we seek to live for His honor and glory. And they help us to process our emotions so that we're not led by those varied emotions, but instead understand better how to bring such things under the Lordship of Christ. Now, this is true of any portion of Scripture, but I think in particular of the Psalms. We could say that the Psalms are reflective and shaping. They are reflective in the sense that they show us our hearts, exposing those inward longings and desires and revealing to us our mind, showing us what it is that we believe. At the same time, they shape in the sense that they help to reorient us toward our covenant God. And I think we see both of those elements clearly here in Psalm 13. We see the psalmist David really pour out his heart to God as these inward complexities of his struggles are laid bare before the Lord, as he processes those things in the presence of God that serves to bring mind and heart 
reoriented back toward the loving and faithful covenant God. So let's explore this process here in this psalm. Let's think how David experiences trust, even in the midst of deep anguish and pain. And so first this morning, let's look at verses 1 and 2, in which David speaks about this feeling of being deserted by God. And so we could put our first point like this, the feeling of desertion. Now, notice that I'm saying here the feeling of desertion and not the reality of desertion, because the feelings that David pours out of his heart to God in these first two verses do not line up with the reality of who God is in His unchanging nature. Though he feels deserted by God, the fact is the Lord will never abandon those who are His own children. Though he feels God to be distant, that is contrary to the Lord's unchanging nature. He feels as though His enemies will triumph. And while it may seem for a time as though such enemies are gaining the upper hand, We know that a day of vindication is coming for those who are in Christ the Lord. So what is it that's going on in David's life that would lead him to this type of experience? What is David, why is David feeling this particular way as though he is deserted and abandoned by God? And we know that some psalms can easily be placed within the historical context in which they were written but we can only speculate as to when Psalm 13 was composed during the life of David. Maybe it was written when Saul was pursuing David with that murderous rage, or perhaps it was written when his own son Absalom was conspiring and seeking to take the throne from him. Or maybe David is experiencing great physical trial in his own health, uncertain of his own recovery. Or perhaps he's dealing with internal anguish that comes through guilt of conscience, something that continues to plague him within mind and heart. Whatever it is, I think we can safely say this is a psalm that was written in the context of darkness, deep despair and suffering. And where the psalms of lament like this one can help us learning to express hearts of anguish to the Lord is to learn how to go to Him, the God who listens and the God who cares. And the Psalms of Lament, either explicitly like Psalm 13 or implicitly, tend to ask this question of God, how long? And we see here in these first two verses four times that David cries out to the Lord with this how long question, sorrow that is reflected in this deep anguish. Let's consider these questions briefly. To him, it feels as though God has forgotten him. Notice that in verse 1. And this is not just a passing feeling, but notice that this is something that really seems to linger. Will you forget me forever? It seems as though he has asked the Lord on multiple occasions for relief, for some change in the hardship of circumstances, but things have not changed. If he knew an end was coming, perhaps he could endure. If there was light at the end of the tunnel, so to speak, if this hardship would soon pass, then perhaps he could focus there and wait upon its arrival. But it seems as though there is no end in sight. And perhaps you've had that experience yourself of pouring out your heart to the Lord, 
out of anguish and hurts and hardship over and again, and it seems as though there is no answer. You pray for relief from that difficulty, but things continue. You see concerning signs in the life of your children of disinterest toward things of the Lord, but as you pray for them, it seems that they continue to choose this wayward path. And you start to wonder if God really hears or really cares about you. There are millions of people around the world praying to God at any given time. Certainly, they have much greater needs and greater struggles than me. And so I could understand, why would the Lord give attention to my needs? Maybe you've had that experience of being forgotten, and that's an apt description of what it feels like with the Lord. I can think of an incident from my own life over 30 years ago now when I was in college attending at the beginning of the semester one of these campus gatherings for one of the on-campus ministries. I'm sure there was free pizza and soda is why me and my friends went. And I think it was one of the upperclassmen of this campus ministry who was charged with the task of going around and greeting the newcomers. And he came to me and asked the basic questions, what is your name and where did you go to high school? What are you studying and where are you living on campus? And then about an hour later, the same guy came up to me and asked the exact same questions (laughs) with no recollection that he had already spoken with me. And I can still remember those feelings of being humiliated and embarrassed, feeling small and insignificant. And I'm sure I was very impatient in my answers with him the second time. You know, it's one thing to be forgotten in a relatively insignificant social setting like that. But if you feel forgotten by God, well, that's obviously a much, much bigger deal. And this is what David is expressing to the Lord in this psalm. But we need to ask, is it even possible for God to forget? To forget who you are as a child redeemed by grace? Listen to what we read in Isaiah 49. Can a woman forget her nursing child that she should have no compassion on the son of her womb. Even these may forget, yet I will not forget you. Psalm 147, great is our Lord and abundant in power. His understanding is beyond measure. When I think of Psalm 139 in which the psalmist reflects upon all of the ways in which the Lord knows us exhaustively that He knows our thoughts from afar, that He knows when we sit and when we rise, that He knows all of our words before even one of them come to be. Hebrews 4, 13, there is nothing in all of creation that is hidden from God's sight. Well, David goes on. Maybe God is just being elusive. He's there, but not really bothering Himself with me. Again, verse 1, this feeling that the Lord's face is hidden from him, that his favor is turned, or perhaps he is giving his attention to other matters. So, is this true? Is God too busy dealing with other more important things on the world stage to be concerned with things in my life? There are wars and rumors of wars. There is poverty and injustice heartache on a grand scale in places throughout this world. And so, perhaps our lives are so petty 
and insignificant to him, that we're just an annoyance to him when we come with our heartache and sorrow. Well, no, not at all. While it's true that we may try to hide from God as our first parents did in the garden in their rebellion against the Lord, He will never hide His face from His children. We hear this promise in Deuteronomy 31, the Lord your God will go with you. He will not leave you or forsake you. We read something similar in Joshua 1 verse 9, do not be frightened, do not be dismayed, for the Lord your God is with you wherever you may go. First Peter chapter 5, verse 7 states, cast all of your anxiety upon Him, for He cares for you. And so He is my loving shepherd. He is my faithful heavenly Father, and He is that loving God. Pastor Jeff Thomas comments that no one has ever trusted Him in vain. He never withholds that which we need, but He is faithful in all of our trials, even though our vision may be hindered. I mentioned last week that my wife and I were able to take vacation a couple of weeks ago and go out west. We were in the Wyoming area, and we decided on our last day to take a trip to go visit Grand Teton National Park. It was a pretty cloudy day with snow and rain, and visibility wasn't too great. We had this app on our phone, which was sort of like an onboard GPS tour guide. And as we were driving towards the park, getting closer, he was telling us about the history of the park and some of the things to notice at different signposts along the way. And as we came through the valley, our guide told us that we were just now being amazed with the majestic mountains before us. But all we could see was a layer of clouds. And to us, at that point at least, they seemed like the not-so-grand Tetons. <laughs> now, of course, our inability to see those amazing peaks did not change the fact that they were there, impressive and majestic. And thankfully, the sun came out later in the afternoon, and we were able to see the grand vision of what had been there all along. You see, there might be much in the purposes of the Lord that we just don't see or the things that we do see are unpleasant to us. And we would love for that veil to be lifted, to have just a glimpse into the mind of God as to what He is doing. But we walk by faith and not by sight. We sang this morning that wonderful hymn by William Cooper, judge not the Lord by feeble sense, but trust Him for His grace. Behind a frowning providence, he hides a smiling face. And so David feels forgotten. God feels elusive and hidden to him. But there is more to David's struggle as he continues to wrestle there in verse 2. How long must I take counsel in my soul? Maybe there are things that I just need to figure out myself. Am I supposed to go inward, inside of the self, as it were, looking to those inward feelings or inner intuition to guide and direct me and to deal with the sorrows of my heart? Well, this would be a terrible option, wouldn't it? Living in a godless universe, 
trying to figure out life on your own through your own resources leads to misery and to weariness. If you do not have the living God with you, you have nothing and you have no hope. But in fact, we are not left to our own ingenuity or insight. Just a couple of chapters later in Psalm 16, we read, I have set the Lord always before me because He is at my right hand. I shall not be shaken. You make known to me the path of life. In your presence there is fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. Well, then in David's final vexing struggle further there in verse 2, it's expressed in this feeling that his enemies are being victorious. How long will my enemy be exalted over me? Again, we don't know the identity of this enemy, whether it's some form of serious physical illness or a spiritual struggle in nature or habits of the life, habits of mind and heart that seem to be gaining the upper hand. Now, certain enemies in this life seem like formidable opponents, and at times it can feel as though we are being defeated and overwhelmed. But God's Word promises our victory in Christ Jesus. 1 Corinthians 15, the Apostle Paul writes that even in the face of death, we can give thanks to the Lord because of the victory that is ours in Christ Jesus. 1 John 4, 4 tells us, little children, you are from God and have overcome those false spirits of this world. For he who is in you is greater than he who is in the world. There's that wonderful text from Romans chapter 8 in which the Apostle Paul reflects upon all of the things in the created realm, nothing of which can take us from the loving hands of our heavenly Father, that there is no enemy that can take us from such love but we are more than conquerors. And so you see, much of what David feels does not line up with the reality of what God has told us is true about himself. And perhaps part of what his struggle is here in these verses is just that. He knows that God will not forsake him, and yet he feels abandoned and forgotten. He knows that God will not turn his face from him, and that this he feels as though God is far removed. He knows that God has purpose in all things, and yet his circumstances are dark, and he cannot see any good coming from it. And for us, it is the severity, the intensity, oftentimes the longevity of hardship that can lead to such struggle in our own lives. It may be the heaviness of sorrow that weighs upon mind and heart, it may be physical, ongoing, and chronic pain that seems to rob us of joy. It could be the worries or anxieties about the decisions that another you love is making, or the heartache of the division of a broken relationship. These are not light things. These are not things that simply the passing of time will make go away. But it seems as though such heartache is there with you constantly, and you wonder, is it going to be like this forever? We just cannot think our way out of darkness or feel our way out of such sorrow 
and we wonder, is there any hope? But the comfort is that there is hope. We see this in our second point this morning. There is hope in the Lord. There is light in the darkness. And before we go on to look at the second stanza here in verses 3 and 4, there is actually, I would argue, a glimmer of hope even in verses 1 and 2. Because even in these dark verses, there is hope in the sense that this is a prayer to the Lord. David is taking these inward struggles directly to God. And so as you read through the Psalms and you come even to the darkest of the Psalms of lament, there may be great anguish and heartache, but at the very least, they are prayers to the Lord. The psalmist knows that there is only one to whom he can go because there is only one who can truly help and bring comfort Someone has written, when we begin to speak to God about such feelings of desertion, we are no longer at our lowest point, but the tide has turned, and we are on our way up again. And so the lament has, we could say, sort of a J-curve, as it were. He reaches the low point, but the Lord is gracious to work within His mind and heart and to begin to pull Him from such sorrow and heartache. And while his feelings are clouding his judgment and keeping him from seeing with clarity, he knows where to go, that it is God alone who can help him. Sinclair Ferguson illustrates it like this. His mother had this very serious ailment and needed a life-saving operation. Without the operation, she would surely die. But the operation itself was extremely risky, and she may not survive. But after the procedure was finished, the surgeon came from the operating room to speak with him and tell Ferguson that his mother had survived the operation and said to him, of course, in her general condition, we do not know whether she can live for seven or eight. Ferguson writes, I thought the last words in his sentence might be days. To me, she looked irrecoverably ill, and my heart sank. But then he finished his sentence. Seven or eight years. I was overcome with both joy and amazement, for she would live. To my untrained and inexperienced eye, her condition seemed fatal. But in actual fact, she was on the mend. And Ferguson says the same is true here for David. To the untrained eye, his condition seems fatal. It seems as there can be no hope for one who is in such despondency. But in fact, he was already on the mend, for he is turning to the Lord. And so in this example from Ferguson, it's a matter, we could say, of bringing the inward heartache in line with the reality of the healing that is happening. It's the inner man bring in line, being brought in line with the outward reality of who God is, bringing the mind and heart in line with the truth of the Lord. And so he goes to the Lord in prayer. And doing so, even in darkness, is evidence that that tide is beginning to turn within, that it's no longer the emotions that are dominating but you're crying out to the Lord for you know that He hears and you know that He will care. So what is the content of David's prayer? 
As he goes to the Lord in verse 3, what are the things that he is asking of the Lord in these petitions? Well, notice that he prays that God will look upon him, for he believes that it is God alone who can bring light and life. What David is asking for, really, we could say, is for the comfort of the Aaronic benediction that we read in Numbers chapter 6. He wants that blessing of comfort to become an experiential reality to him, to be blessed of the Lord, that the Lord's face would shine upon him, that the Lord would lift his countenance toward him and grant him peace. And as he asks the Lord to light up his eyes there in the second line of verse 3, he is asking the Lord to give him life, for he knows that God alone can bring that inward renewal that is so desperately needed. We find this idiom in a narrative in 1 Samuel chapter 14. You might remember the story well. Jonathan, the son of King Saul, has just completed victory in battle. And not knowing of his father's decree that none of the soldiers are to eat, he takes honey from the honeycomb, and as he eats it, the text tells us that his eyes become bright, a way to speak about vibrancy of life returning, health being restored. And so, what is this you see that David looks to the Lord alone to bring that life and spiritual vitality that can come from him only? John Calvin writes, what David is confessing is that unless God causes the light of life to shine upon him, he will be immediately overwhelmed with the darkness of death, and he is already without life unless God breathe into him new vigor. And so, what David does in this psalm, you see, is he draws upon what he knows to be true in the covenant promises of God. He feeds his soul with the comforting nourishment of the promises of the Lord. You alone can help and answer me, O Lord. You alone can bring life, otherwise I would die. And only you are the one who can grant victory over my enemies. And so the content of David's prayer helps to move him away from the self and toward God away from these feelings that have dominated his mind and caused this restlessness to promises of the covenant Lord. And so, the shift, we could say, is like this. It's a shift from introspection to extrospection, from being overly focused upon himself to being enamored with God, being captivated by the greatness of the Lord. You know, in hardship and in suffering, it kind of goes without saying that it can be easy to focus upon the self, to dwell upon all of the things that are unpleasant in life and all of the things that we wish would change. And if the focus is only upon the self, then it can be this inward turmoil of swirling emotions. But David guides us, instructs us to look outside of self to the unchanging one. Now, there are two things I think here to note before we move on to the final stanza and the conclusion of this psalm. The first thing to note is that we have no indication from the psalm 
that his circumstances have changed, but rather it is the promises of the Lord to him, bringing to him comfort that he belongs to the Lord, which serves to anchor him in truth. And so it is change that is happening internally within his heart, not necessarily externally with his circumstances. We might think of an example here from the New Testament in the life of the Apostle Paul. In the book of Philippians, Paul writes from a Roman prison, literally changed to Roman guards, but instead of being filled with despondency, he sees this as an opportunity to proclaim the gospel to those guards whom he has changed to. And he rejoices that this imprisonment is actually leading to an advancement of the gospel. And so this, you see, is what David needs. He needs his eyes enlightened, and the Lord helps him. The Lord works within his heart. And as he does so, we read there in verse 4 that the Lord silences his enemies. Now, that doesn't mean that their voices stop necessarily. If this is a form of mockery or belittling from others, it could be that such words continue, but those voices will not prevail over me. They will not shake me because those are not the things that define me. The Old Testament scholar Derek Kidner writes, no circumstance has mastery over you. No circumstance can force you to respond a certain way. There is still a choice to make because the covenant remains. And the second thing for us to note here at this point is it is important for us to keep in mind that the psalmist's experience does not transform in the amount of time that it takes us to read this psalm. We should never presume that a psalm is a simple formula that we read or pray through and that this should be the expected result by the time we get to the end of it. But even a short psalm like this could have been composed by David over a very lengthy period of time through deep and heartfelt prayer to the Lord through regular meditation upon the promises of God, slowly working such things upon his heart, bringing him from despondency to joy in the Lord. And that brings us to the third and final point this morning, which is great joy in the salvation of the Lord. And so as David shifts from this focus of self in verses 1 and 2 to the covenant promises of the Lord in verses 3 and 4, well, how does this shift take root? This is our third point from verses 5 and 6, and that is trust in the form of worship, trust in worshiping the Lord. Listen again to verses 5 and 6. But I have trusted in your steadfast love. My heart shall rejoice in your salvation. I will sing to the Lord because He has dealt bountifully with me. You see, the psalm began with a focus upon his inward thoughts, these inward feelings. But as he gives attention and focus to the Lord and to the promises that he knows from the, from the truth of the Lord, it shifts him away from self toward the kingdom of God. And so while the enemies may be boasting in themselves, David wishes to give his heart's attention 
to the steadfast love of the Lord. And so how does this happen? How does this shift happen in David's life so that it's not something that he returns to, to those feelings of despondency? Well, it's no hidden secret. It's through the cultivation of the means of grace, isn't it? It's meditation upon the Word of God and drawing comfort from the covenant promises of the Lord, feeding upon the truth of Scripture. It's prayer to the Lord who hears and who knows and who answers. And as you think of prayer in your own life in the midst of anguish and heartache, certainly pray about those circumstances for the Lord longs to hear from the hearts of His children, but at the same time dwell upon the attributes of the Lord in adoration, praising Him for who He is and His unchanging nature. And pray as well for the needs of the church around the world and the needs that arise within our own church family. Take time to reflect upon all of the ways in which the Lord has been bountiful with you. Fill your mind with gratitude for the many blessings that the Lord has showered upon you and for the hope of salvation. And truly, the blessings of the Lord are immeasurable. And as we dwell upon such things, we cannot help but sing out of hearts of praise and thanksgiving. And so notice how this psalm goes from a very dark lament to worshiping the Lord in song with a very joyful end. But you see, God is not the one who has changed. And it's not David's status as a redeemed child of God that has changed. But instead, it is David coming to a greater understanding of what has always been true. And the result is trust and joy and singing and worship. And so David is remembering, we could say, not just recalling certain truths and facts, but remembering experientially. And as these truths surrounding the Lord's nature become more real, more living and vibrant to Him. It is the Lord's love which is steadfast, an immovable love that will never leave Him or forsake Him. And there is joy in the reality of salvation that even if this is a hardship that lasts the entirety of my earthly life, I have a salvation that is eternal in nature. This is what moved the Apostle Paul to make such wondrous statements like this in 2 Corinthians 4. For this light momentary affliction is preparing for us an eternal weight of glory beyond all comparison. As we look not to the things that are seen, but to the things that are unseen. For the things that are seen are transient, temporary, passing. But the things that are unseen are eternal. Or Romans chapter 5. We rejoice in our suffering knowing that our suffering produces endurance, and endurance produces character, and character produces hope. And hope does not put us to shame because God's love has been poured into our hearts through the Holy Spirit who has been given to us. And all of this, you see, so fills David's heart that he cannot help but sing to the Lord. In many ways, we could say that this is the natural response for the one who is truly captivated 
by the beauty and blessings of the Lord to worship Him, to sing praises to His name. So how can the comforts and the confidence of this psalm be ours as well? How can we, if we are going through periods of deep anguish and heartache, how can we experience the joy and comfort of the Lord? If we are not experiencing such things, it will inevitably come in this life. And so how can we prepare for the heartache that is to come? Well, first, trust in the great King. You see, though David was a king, the king of Israel, he has his own limitations. He's limited in his power. He's limited in his influence. He's limited in his abilities. And even though he was one who was appointed by God and had favor from the Lord, he has weaknesses, and there are many things that he cannot control. And so even King David needs a greater king, someone who will rule in righteousness and truth someone who is ever trustworthy and good, someone who has unlimited power and sovereignty over all things and who will make things right. And of course, we have such a king and our beloved Savior, and He is the one in whom we can trust. And our faith itself may waver, and gratefully, it is not the quantity or the quality of our faith that saves us, but it is the object of our faith, and it is the object of our faith which grants to us the certainty of outcome. But it's not just the great king who rules. It is the great king who took my place. Though David feels forgotten and feels abandoned, though he feels as though the Lord's face is turned from him, The comfort for God's people is that our God will never turn His face away, though it's true we deserve such treatment. And we will never know such abandonment because of the blessed work of our Savior who experienced this isolation that is spoken of in verses 1 and 2 as He took the wrath of God upon Himself, as He was nailed to the cross. And as he cried out, my God, my God, why hast thou forsaken me? And our Savior's cry of anguish was transformed into the wonder of his resurrection from the grave. And so our ultimate hope, the reason why we can always sing to the Lord of the joy of our salvation is because of the hope of the resurrection life that is ours in Christ our Lord. And so go to the Lord in prayer, casting all of your troubles upon Him, and know that He who is in you is greater than He who is in the world. May God be pleased to take the truth of His Word and the eternal promises of the covenant and write them upon the hearts of His children. Amen.